Now, before we <clears throat> turn to Colossians 1, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 20, and before I pray, I will make this very helpful observation. When you're sledding in the snow, there is a terminal velocity typical with which mere sleds reach. After a point, you won't go any faster. But if you are going down a long hill, a stride, an inner tube, the, <laughs> the speed can increase exponentially. Uh, make inquiry with Carrie and ask how far Jenna slid when they finally hit the bottom. <laughs> it was, it's a glorious video to watch. All right, let's pray. Glorious Lord God, maker, creator of heaven and earth, thou hast all knowledge, all foreknowledge, all wisdom, all power. Truly thou art the self-existent one, without beginning, without end, and forever praised, amen. How shall we conceive of thee, Almighty God? And yet, you have self-revealed in the pages of sacred scripture, and ultimately in these last days, through Jesus Christ, you have gloriously revealed thyself in the finality of sonship, thy son, thine unbegotten Son, our gloriously resplendent Lord Jesus Christ. Be forever praised, thou eternal three, yea, one God, but three glorious relationally dancing from eternity past three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity. Spirit of God, breathe through the scripture this day. Illuminate our minds, revealing the wonder of thy truths. Soften, shape our wills after the blessedly sweet obedience of Jesus to thee, his Father in heaven. Radiantly engulf our affections as we behold thy plan, the mystery hidden from past ages and generations. May we behold thy beauty, uncreated glorious beauty, in thy word this day, all to the praise of the glory of thy grace. Amen. Well, take your Holy Scripture, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I will read from the 13th through the 20th verse. Colossians 1, 13 through 20. Let's stand together. Thank you. Speaking of the Father cited in verse 12. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, through him, all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. Listen first to the very helpful Reformation Study Bible on overview of verses 15 through 20. And I highly, highly commend the Reformation Study Bible to you. It will greatly aid your understanding. I quote, Paul breaks into a doxology, starting with verse 15, to the grandeur and glory of Jesus Christ. Some believe Paul is appropriating an early Christian hymn by pointing to the supremacy of Christ both in creation, verses 15 through 17, and in redemption, verses 18 through 20. He points out what was missing in the false teaching at Colossae and adequate view of the person and work of Jesus. By explaining Jesus Christ in this way, he invites his readers to worship the Son of God. End quote. A little doctrine before explanation. Verses 15 through 20 in Colossians 1 represent one of the New Testament's high points Christologically. It's very significant. The comprehensive vision of all reality reaches a virtual New Testament apex with its focus on Christ as supreme over everything in creation and in the new creation. And these verses are often referred to as the Christ hymn. And they stand out not just content-wise, but stylistically as well. Paul's normal style of writing is in rather long, complex sentences. Nearly the entirety of Ephesians chapter 1 is one continuous sentence. They weren't like us today who have to have short sound bites to comprehend anything. So much more complex. Uh, but in these verses here in Colossians 1, Paul strings together like bullet points. Brief assertions about Christ, each with profoundly deep theological entailments. So why this deep theology here? The Christology of chapter 1 serves the greater purpose of this four-chapter letter by setting forth Christ as the exclusive instrument through whom God created the universe and through whom he is in the process of bringing the entirety of the created order, all things created, under subjection to himself. And to achieve this goal, Paul either uses a pre-existing, beautiful Christ hymn from the early church, or he creates one. Doesn't really matter. Either way, 
The Holy Spirit superintends 15 to 20 as God's breathed out, inspired, inerrant word. So these verses then give us Christological statements which back up the reality of what Paul has just said in verses 12 through 14. If your Bible's not open, you really won't track well. But if it is, you will better. These verses explain the redemption he has just spoken of in verses 12 through 13, 14. And, and is a theme that he will take up again immediately in verse 21. After we close with verse 20. Our rescue from the domain of darkness, verse 13, is certain and lasting because God accomplished it through none other than the one who is Lord of the universe. Our rescue, this is the thought. Our rescue from the domain of darkness is certain and lasting, is forever, because God accomplished it through none other than he who is the supreme ruler over all things created. Hmm. Explanation. Let's go to verse 18. See the shift. Verse 15 says, And he is the image of the invisible God, right after citing redemption and forgiveness. Now, verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church. God's breathed out scripture here describes Christ's relationship to the church organically. Big word. The breathed out scripture here describes Christ and God the Father's relationship to the church organically as a body with Christ as the head. Now, of interest also is that the twin epistles of Colossians and Ephesians describe the church using this body metaphor ten times between the two of them. This is a distinctive of Colossians and Ephesians. Clearly then, the apostle and yes, the superintending Holy Spirit wanted the Colossians and now us to learn to think about the church organically. Organically. Turn back to Ephesians 1, 20-23. And that I think we were going to read Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 and observe. And I encourage you, get a Bible, open it up, follow with me, because you're going to see some things that stand out. Ephesians 1, 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, <laughs> but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See the phrasing? It's New American. I'm not sure how the ESV says it. But gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him 
who fills all in all. So look carefully at that passage in Ephesians. Observe it is from the vantage point of having all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name named, not just in this age, but also the age to come. It's from that vantage point that God the Father has put everything in subjection to Christ under his feet. And the Father then gave Christ, supreme ruler of all creation, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is as supreme ruler of all creation that Christ is given as head to the body, the church. The sequence, the trajectory is huge here. And that is the sequence in Colossians chapter 1, the same sequence. It is in the context of as supreme ruler of all creation that Christ is then seen as head of the body, the church. This is huge and thoroughly biblical. The man Jesus Christ, the God-man, is far bigger than just Savior of the church. The context from which he is introduced to us as supreme ruler of heaven and earth, supreme ruler of all created realm, is the context out of which he is then described as head of the church, his body. Now that might change your view of who this is before whom we bow. He's much more than just the savior of me. He is supreme ruler of heaven and earth and has taken us to himself also. Now, to identify Christ as head of the body, the church, is to think of the church as vitalized, enlivened by her head. It is to think of the church as energized by Christ's divine, saving, redeeming power. It is to see the church as the primary instrument through which he carries out his work, his salvific, his redemptive work upon the earth. It is to understand how Paul can speak of believers as being in Christ and Christ as being in them. And it is to powerfully link to John's description in chapter 15 of the gospel to Christ as the vine and we as the branches. For here, here is a truly organic descript by Christ himself of the relationship of believers to him. I'm looking at John 15, 1 through 11 now. John 15, 1 through 11, I invite you to turn with me, please. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I'm in John 15 verse 4 now. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, ye can do nothing. Six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Remember, that's a, that's a big clue what it means to abide in Christ, that his words abide in you. I'm a Bible-reading man. I'm a Bible-reading woman. So much so that his word is abiding in me. Remember that from John 15? Very, very key. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus loves you just as tenderly as the Father loves Jesus. Hmm. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Pastoral reflection. Logistical structure does not bring joy. It can bring satisfaction but it doesn't result in dancing in the street. Logistical structure does not bring joy. Organic relational growth, loving our sweet Savior, brings peace, dancing in joy, and joy resting in peace. Peace breathed over us, to us, in us, by our beloved Savior, through one another. And this church, this particular church, has been richly blessed these past two years by an increasing awareness of the organic nature by which Christ has grown us. With no building of our own, just what has been graced to us here, no facility or campus of our own, our eyes have been turned off a focus on structure as we have joyfully found our gaze falling on the organic growth which Christ has nourished in relationships amidst a growing plurality of ministries and ministry outreaches. And the women's ministry was the first to be illustrative, manif manifesting this organic growth of joy. This has been our Father's all-wise 
designed intention these past two years. He has made no mistake. He's not flustered, wringing his hands. What am I going to do? Oh, no. You see, character building always precedes structure. When it doesn't, you have problems. Character building always precedes structure in Christ's church. Well, verse 18b, second half of 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have preeminence in everything. Gloriously, Christ stands as head of the body, the church, the new creation. And in both resurrection as well as in creation, he receives the titles, the beginning and firstborn. Did you catch that? But whereas firstborn of all creation, verse 15, described Christ's supremacy over the created realm, now with the shift to the church in verses 18 to 20, he is said to be the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, referencing his resurrection from the grave. So the glorious opening of the graves and resurrection of the dead that shall accompany the trumpet blast of God at Christ's return has already begun in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The man, Jesus Christ, is the beginning, is the firstborn from the dead. Christ is the first of the great eschatological resurrections. Christ is the first man to rise in a glorified body. It has begun. And that's good news. Oh, that's good news. 1 Corinthians 15, verse Corinthians 15, 21 through 2. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, incredible. As the first Adam brought us into ruin, destruction, and death, the second Adam, the true image of God, Adam, brought us into regeneration, new creation, and life. And Christ is the firstborn of many brethren, Romans 8, 29 tells us. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Wow. Who are the many brethren? referred to at this point in time from this scripture, all the chosen of God who are in the grave. And unless he returns first, there also shall our bodies be. But Christ is the firstborn of many Brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ is the first fruits of them that sleep. 
1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised, the first fruits of them that sleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So, first fruits. Let's go deeper in understanding this blessed, glorious descript of our Savior. First, all of the Old Covenant's feast days typified, found their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. All of the Old Testament's feast days were types of the true fulfillment who is Christ. And the great feast of first fruits following the Sabbath, which followed the Day of Atonement, for the Day of Atonement preceded the Sabbath, so Day of Atonement Friday, then Sabbath, then the feast, for, feast of first fruits was the harvest of barley, a barley harvest. And what they would do, and this is by our hymnist, Horatius Bonar, who wrote in his excellent commentary on Leviticus, they would go out into the field, and the very best of the growing barley, you know, you've got a field of barley, some of it's really prime looking, it's a little higher, they would cut the very best of what was currently growing, bind it into a sheave, the stalk-like thing you see standing upright, bind it into a sheave, and then following a blood sacrifice, the priest holding the sheave would make a wave offering before the Lord, which was essentially to say, as is this first fruits offering, so may the rest of the harvest be. It was a prayer, as is this first fruits offering. So may the rest of the full harvest be. Christ is our first fruits, who was presented before the Father, a prayer from Son to Father through the Eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9.14, with the divine pledge to us that as this first fruit offering is, even so shall the rest of the harvest be. Do you see, do you feel the impact of the implication? Our bodies are going to rise like his. We shall be glorified as his body. As he was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so shall it be with us. Christ, our first fruits. So, all of this is in Colossians, type and pledge of our harvest. This earth's season of ripe increase, the day for which every providence, every event has been preparing, the day for which every breeze, every hour of sunshine has been ripening the wide fields, the peoples, cities, hamlets of the whole world. Christ the first fruits, then they that are Christ at his coming. And the Lord himself will then rejoice with the joy of the harvest. <laughs> oh, glorious that day in Emmanuel's land 
when we shall see our sweet Jesus warmly welcoming us into his Father's eternal home of glory. And because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, our right of entry is secured, eternally assured. Wondrously then, here in this passage of just three verses, 18, 19, and 20, Christ's supremacy is the result of his resurrection. Look at the scripture. This takes nothing away from the thrust of verses 15 to 17, that Christ is eternally sovereign over all creation, but it does reflect a New Testament understanding that in his death and resurrection, his power and authority was established over this fallen, rebellious world to a new and finally triumphant degree. For example, Romans 1.4, Romans 1.4, speaking of Christ Jesus, God's Son, says, who was declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. And perhaps, as I prayed through this, perhaps what we see here is very analogous to that glorious statement in Hebrews 1.6, Hebrews 1.6, and again, when he, the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Certainly, the angels of heaven from the moment of their creation, reverently worshiped Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God in three eternal persons. And yet, when the Son, as firstborn, preeminent, but now man, the God-man, the established second Adam, when he, the eternal Son, appears, God the Father makes clear who he is, and thunder rolls through heaven's courts as all created beings are told to worship him, the man, Christ Jesus. No one ever worshipped the first Adam. <laughs> Eve certainly didn't. No one ever worshipped the first Adam. But all heaven bows low, faces in the ground before the second Adam. Well, our text today is intensely parallel to this scene from heaven's courts. For when with divine power Christ Jesus rose as firstborn from the dead, the original intention for Christ as the image of God, Colossians 1.15, was established, making man ruler over all creation. The man ruler over all creation, the God-man, supreme ruler over all creation, utterly preeminent over all. And Paul's thought for the new church in Colossae is that Christ is just as preeminent in the realm of redemption as he is in the realm of creation. Verse 19, 
For it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Look at that. Verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And this must surely be understood from the vantage point of chapter 2, verse 9. Turn there. He, uh, Colossians 2, 9. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul here uses an interestingly rich word, fullness. Its usage is a direct doctrinal blow of truth against the false teaching in Colossae and the pagan world. For in the mid-2nd century, the 100s, the same word was used by full-blown Gnosticism, which spoke of a huge totality of emanations or divine entities intermediate between God and the world. Thus, any communication between God and men had to pass through these spheres where these spirit guides Spirit voices, spirit powers ruled and exercised control. But the whole of this heretical teaching was undermined in this one simple affirmation about the totality of divine essence and power in Christ. Christ is the one all-sufficient intermediary between God and man. And in Christ, all the attributes of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his foreknowledge, all are disclosed in him. Christ Jesus is supreme God the Son in whom dwells all the fullness of deity. There are no intermediary spirits. Pastoral reflection. But some believers don't think like that. Some believers don't act like that. But a believer in Christ will put no trust in alleged life-after-death experiences. So you got a show on TV or somebody died and came back to life and it tells, what's that? It's a lie. It's deception. After death, if you've died, you're either in flames or you're with Jesus. And there's no communication. So who are they communicating with? It ain't Jesus, though it's a nice, pretty little TV show. A believer in Christ puts no trust in alleged life after death experiences alleged angelic messages, seances allegedly communicating with the dead, tarot cards, Ouija boards, or any alleged otherworldly communication. Furthermore, no believer seeking our supreme overcreation Christ would ever watch movies involving witchcraft, demonic activity, or the pursuit thereof. You can't have a foot in Christ and a foot in that. Either Christ is supreme ruler over all, 
or you're buying into the lie of this age. Now look at verse 20, where we'll close. And through Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Have you made peace through the blood of the cross? Through him I say whether, and here's that phrase again, which was first stated in verse 16, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Follow with me. If all things in heaven and on earth were created through Christ, and yet all must be reconciled to God through Christ, it follows that all things have been estranged, rebellious against their creator. And this is the theology of Romans 8, Romans 8, 19 to 25. In Adam's fall, we fell all, and creation itself was involuntarily enslaved to corruption, but is destined to be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8 says, the cosmos groans and suffers under pains of childbirth, as it were. But Paul says that we ourselves as believers groan within, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body, the redemption of our body. So while Romans 8 speaks of the inanimate, all-moral, created world, Colossians 1 speaks of the moral agency world of both mankind and angelic powers. And verse 20 links itself back to verse 16, repeating the category summary, things on earth and things in heaven. And thus, this cosmic reconciliation of all things by God the Father to himself through Christ will be not just a cosmos subjected to corruption restored, nor just all mankind, but also all hostile spiritual powers. Clear in Colossians there is a hostility by these spiritual powers toward God and his Christ that is reflected and mirrored in mankind. And through Christ all shall be reconciled through the blood of his cross. <clears throat> so the cross of Christ does not just save sinners chosen by the Father. The cross of Christ established and shattered the power of Satan and his demonic hordes. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 of Colossians. God, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Incredibly, through the cross, Christ was made supreme over sinners saved and sinners damned. 
supreme over the demonic realm and the angelic realm, and yet supreme over the cosmos itself. This reconciliation <clears throat> of the universe includes what would otherwise be distinguished as the forcible suppression of a hostile population. Hmm. Forcible suppression of a hostile population. You know the term in the theology books for that? Pacification. But I read pacification and I heard to pacify, to roll over, belly up, try to make good with somebody. That's not what it meant. Not at all. So instead of using the word, I defined it for you. The forcible suppression of hostile population, demonic, and they that will go to hell because of unbelief. So the principalities and powers whose conquest is described in 2.15 are compelled to submit to a power they are unable to resist. Isaiah 24.21 On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. Thus, and this is a very important closing sentence in the explanation, thus all angelic powers and sinful mankind has been decisively subdued to the will of God and ultimately can but serve his purpose whether they please or not. They don't know it. The governor doesn't know who he's really serving, nor does anyone, federal or state. Doctrine. I'll let the Ref Study Bible tie it together on verse 20 of a short paragraph packed deep. Verse 20. The high point of the hymn. Mankind's fall into sin brought with it the corruption of all creation seen and unseen. Through Christ's incarnation and atoning death, God's righteousness is satisfied. Peace between God and sinners restored. The eventual glorification of the created order is assured, and the rebellious spirit beings have been subdued. Even peace with intractable enemies will eventually occur, which can be conceived of as a final end-time pacification. There's that word in the Reformation Study Bible. When even Christ's opponents are consummately brought into subjection to him, a subjection that began at the cross and resurrection. And this brings us then to application. I shift into Philippians 2 because Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, does an interesting thing. It's pretty much the same trajectory as Colossians 1. But Philippians 2, the imperative, precedes the indicative. Oh. In Philippians 2, the imperative precedes the indicative. Well, the indicative is that the name of Jesus, every knee, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But what about the imperatives? Look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5, I think. Based on this deep doctrine about the supremacy of Christ, guess what is enjoined on us? Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Now, if I'm in the midst of an assembly of believers where I don't agree with things and I'm not of one mind, nor of one love, nor in one accord, why in the world am I still here? Because we are to be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, and of one mind. How is this with you, my brother, my sister? How is this with you? Is it your desire? Are you praying for what he wants to see in you? We are then told to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Selfish ambition, narcissism, me, 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 I, I, what I want, what I want. Empty conceit now turns its eyes outward. I'm better than him, better than him, better than her. Empty conceit. Don't do any selfish ambition or empty conceit. Proverbs will say, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Don't be numbered among those who like to tell all about yourself. Let others tell about you. Let the Lord exalt you. Don't be trying to exalt yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Then, in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. You, collective, and you as individuals, are really more important than I am. That is how a pastor thinks. Count others as more significant than yourself. How is this with you? The Pharisees' prayer who was he praying to? Himself, read the text, didn't even get to heaven. But his eyes are, he's bitter at this person, angry at this person, has unforgiveness issues over here, and remembers what was done over here. That's a Pharisee praying. But in humility, count others as more significant and look to the interests of others as you look out for your own interests and theirs trump yours. Is that how people describe me? See, in a parallel passage, Philippians 2, with the richness of what Ephesians and Colossians, we're in Colossians 1, establishes of Christ being made supreme ruler over all creation, and he is also head of the body of the church. In the midst of all that, here's how you 
and I are to behave and think. Let's pray. Father, we yield. <laughs> we yield to the glorious reign of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, how we love you. And we are amazed. Just it stretches us so to realize that it is and was from the context of you, Christ, as the image of the invisible God, established as supreme, preeminent ruler over all the created realm, that I'm then told you're also head of the body, the church. We marvel realizing you are so much bigger than we have thought. And so we bow before you as our king, head of the church, our savior, as our second Adam. We bow before you as the perfect in flesh manifestation of the image of God. And we bow before you as the most high, potentate, supreme ruler of all things in heaven, under the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Humbly we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Oh,